Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today, we're welcoming on the program Dr. Aisha Ramachandran. She's Assistant Professor of Comparative Literature at Yale University and the Director of Graduate Studies in the Complet Department. Uh, Dr. Ramachandran, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me. Uh, Dr. Ramachandran's research focuses on the literature and culture of the 16th and 17th centuries, and especially Europe's relations with an expanding world. Uh, and indeed, today on the podcast, our topic is the world. You know, no big deal, a small topic. It's a very small topic. <laughs> Just the world. Um, and we're actually going to be uh, talking about some of the results that's come out of Dr. Ramachandran's new monograph entitled World Makers, Global Imagining in Early Modern Europe. That's Chicago University Press. Uh, this is a fascinating work. It straddles uh, the field of comparative literature and history in a really nice way. I really enjoyed uh, the flow and language, that complete flavor that I don't always get in the history field. It was a little <laughs> bit refreshing for me from some of my earlier readings. And so the title is World Makers. Uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. But mm -hmm. I do want to mention that this is part of our History of Science series, uh, which uh, focuses on history of science in the Ottoman Empire and uh, the early modern world in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had a couple recent episodes, an episode with Karen Pinto about Islamic cartography, mm -hmm. uh, a very interesting conversation with Nir Shafir. Yeah, I bet. Mm -hmm. And we've also had a recent uh, discussion with uh, Palmyra Brummett, mm -hmm. uh, an Ottoman historian who's looking at how Europe uh, mapped the Ottoman Empire. Uh, our conversation today will be a nice complement uh, to those uh, two episodes, I think. So I want to ask you... To start off, what do you, what is a world maker? Who is a world maker? This is a noun that came out of, uh, f for me, that uh, came out of left field. I hadn't heard of it before, but this is apparently a phenomenon that you're analyzing in your text. Yes, I think that for historians, it's a term that seems very much anachronistic, and it sort of its origin in my own work comes out of two quite different places. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a term that became very popular in contemporary philosophy in the 60s and 70s to refer to an alternative to realist uh, ways of thinking about hmm. the world and its phenomenology. So world making became a way to talk about the sort of perspectival, subjective ways in which people encounter and then order the world around them. So it was a kind of a powerful historical, um, philosophical concept that was made popular by Nelson Goodman in a book that was called Ways of World Making mm -hmm. uh, and really became a way of, as I said, thinking about phenomenology from a quite different perspective in the context of analytic philosophy. But I realized as I was working that this is a very old idea, really a 16th century idea, and mm. it's a term that's coined in the late um, in the late 16th, possibly 17th century, to talk specifically about God as the creator in the context of the new science. So we get the idea of. I say this in my book, one of the earliest uses of the word in English is to talk about God as a world maker and watchmaker uh, mm, in that early yeah. sense of the mechanistic philosophy. So world making becomes a derivative of um, other compound words in English like playwright and wheelwright and cartwright, uh, maker of an object. Um, and so uh, conceptually and from the history of science perspective, this is really interesting, but we get the idea of the world as being a thing or an object that is crafted or made. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And one of the big contested questions in the early modern period is the sort of passage from the idea of the divine as being the agent yeah. uh, or creator of the world to the possibility for human creation of the world. And so mm-hmm. my book is really interested both in the legacy of that kind of early theological scientific nexus um, in the period, but also the way in which that filters more broadly into the history of philosophy and the history of science. I mean, this research uh, is dealing with uh, world making in two senses, right? Both people trying to understand this, as you said, this this notion of creation or how the world is made, mm-hmm. but also uh, Europeans or early modern Europeans constructing new worlds or indeed making you know what we understand as a world. It's interesting to think about how much uh, the notion of a world, a concept that's very much part of our everyday life. We mm-hmm. write about the Islamic world, the Ottoman world, Absolutely. whatever world. And you know, it's very funny. The genesis of this book is a very odd one. I wrote a dissertation in the English department mm-hmm. on fictional worlds. Mm-hmm. So really about books in the 16th and 17th century that imagine other you know, non-real worlds, uh, utopias and other sorts of things. Mm -hmm. But as I was working on this project, I realized that people kept saying to me, well, what do you mean by world? I mean, you're talking about, Mm -hmm. you know, a novel? Are you Mm -hmm. talking about like the world, like I myself am a world? And so I got annoyed enough to try to kind of tease out what that term meant. And I said, well, there must be an intellectual history of the world somewhere. Mm -hmm. I'll go look for it. And so I looked and looked and looked and discovered that there really was no such book on the intellectual history mm. of the term world. And in fact, even though there's been an explosion in a scholarship on globalization and the history of globalization, and we yeah. talk so much about the global and the world and all, you know, as as a kind of self-evident category, yeah. there's been no systematic academic investigation of that term as a concept. Right. And when you put pressure on it, you discover that it's actually not so self-evident at all. Right. And if anything, it's one of the more amorphous terms that mm-hmm. we juggle with as academics and that perhaps there is room to actually write that intellectual history. History. So I found myself, in a sense, writing the book that I was looking for. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I'm not... <laughs> and I discovered also why that book hadn't been written <laughs> because it's kind <laughs> of a crazy project. Um, but a lot of the excitement about writing this book was about trying to figure out how it might be possible to produce this kind of intellectual history. Mm-hmm. You know, how can you be both geographically situated? I mean, there's no question this is, a, in some ways, a European book about yeah. world-making And how is it possible to methodologically uncover a way to write that intellectual history that would make possible a similar kind of book, say, from the Ottoman Mm -hmm. perspective or the Middle Eastern perspective or the South Asian one? And I mean, I very much hope this is a book that will sort of encourage people to do that work, which, you know, because of the limitations of my own training, I wasn't able to do, not because I think this is particularly a European phenomenon, but because Mm -hmm. I think we do need more sort of, I guess, probing um, conceptual intellectual histories of these concepts that seem so basic and ubiquitous, but in a sense come with these rich and complicated histories. Well, I want to ask a little more about that notion that world making is or is not a European activity, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. uh, in your work, uh, world making and this uh, redefinition or this uh, conceptualization Mm -hmm. of the world is very much tied to uh, the age of exploration, yes. of course, the the incorporation of the Americas into a world system yeah. uh, and all that goes with it. And so it's uh, a product of uh, Europe's uh, yes. heightened awareness about a larger outside realm beyond whatever was imagined as uh, yes. that prior world. Mm-hmm. So that being the case, um, I, I do wonder uh, if world making is part of this uh, uniquely European moment or if it's actually something that's going on in other parts of uh, yeah, it's the a great, world. So. It's a great question. And it's one that I 
have really struggled with in the writing of the book. I mean, people mm-hmm. would say to me, so are you making a claim, a kind of a deep hegemonic claim for, yeah. you know, the rise of the West and, uh, you know, world making and the modern world as a concept finally being a European one that's exported. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, initially when I got this question, I used to feel kind of annoyed because yeah. I, I'm not, I was not at all trying to make a kind of hegemonic argument. But as I thought more about it and I've become more interested in that question, I, I will say quite strongly that no, I mean, if anything, this book is a book that wants to push back hard against certain kinds of easy post-enlightenment um, stereotypes about mm-hmm. universalism and globalism coming out of Europe. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and really in two, I would say two and three, two or three important ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, one is I think there's a very standard um, 19th century narrative about the rise of the West and the rise yeah. of Europe, the rise of science, expansion, colonialism, tied to Europe's view of an expanding world, the sun never sets in the British Empire, all of these kinds yeah, of these, exactly. these kinds of images. Um, that also led to a consensus of a certain sort of universalist approach coming out of the Enlightenment, mm-hmm. which in turn has and justifiably attracted severe critique in the last 30 years in history and other disciplines. And yeah. part of what motivated my project was an attempt to unpack what seemed to be this kind of monolithic understanding of universalism and globalism historically, that yeah. it's somehow inextricable from colonialism, that it's somehow mm. tied up with, you know, European self-definition as a kind of uh, colonial central power. And one of the things that the book, one of the kind of interesting uh, findings, I think, of the book is that world actually is a very contested, ambivalent mm-hmm. and um, challenging concept, uh, in part because it's uh, it registers the struggle to think about ideas of scale in the 16th yeah. and 17th centuries. So world is not automatically equal to universe, which is not automatically sure. equal to empire. Uh, and these are concepts that tend to supersede and trouble sort of incipient notions of nationalism. Mm-hmm. So these are all um, categories that are in conflict in powerful yeah. ways. World remains deeply tied to theological and metaphysical uh, lines of questioning and as is not automatically and already political in the 16th or 17th century. Uh, and so there's a lot to be gained, I think, by, um, in a sense... I, would, I want to say sort of provincializing Europe, to use mm-hmm. uh, Chakravarti's phrase, and to really put pressure on what seems to be the most obvious kind of consensus idea in, in historical study. So that's yeah. one thing that the book does. Um, but doing that also makes us see that the world was not owned by Europe in this period at all, yeah. even though we tend to talk about the European age of exploration. Um, so I've done preliminary work, and I'm hoping to expand this work to think more, for instance, about the Middle East and South Asia, particularly sure. the Safavid, Ottoman, and Mughal empires. And so I've done some work... Um, for instance, on miniature paintings of the world in from the Jangiri court in the early 17th century, yeah. um, which you know people have argued again reflect European ideas, and I sort of started to suggest that no, it doesn't reflect European ideas in some kind of unmediated way, but rather we see a kind of version of imagining the world that yeah. comes out of this particular center. And so what we need perhaps is not an account that says Europe or the Ottomans right. or the Mughals owned some version of the world, but rather what might characterize or the early modernity or the rise yeah. of modernity is an attempt to rethink these kinds of large scale total yeah. concepts Multi- from various centers. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Well, I mean, when you met, you mentioned Jahangir and, and Mughal Empire, I mean, the very Absolutely. name. Yeah, that's I right. Mean, that's w- right. What kind of name is that? Right. Or you, that's, so and Jahan- I, yeah. 
yeah. is uh, the exactly. world, right? So Absolutely. He's the person who takes over the world. And this is sort of very much uh, part of what I argue that, you know, this, this sense of aspiring to the world seems to be a uniquely kind of mm-hmm. modern preoccupation. And that speaks to kind of another cross uh, disciplinary issue, which is there's been a big question about how can we talk about modernity in mm-hmm. non Western concepts and uh, con- contexts? Yeah. Can we decouple? modernity and modernization from westernization are those two things mm-hmm. always already together so people who work on say south asia or the middle east struggle with the concept of the pre-modern and the modern yeah. while europeanists talk about the medieval the early modern and the modern and there's a real puritization problem that comes out of the difficulty of thinking about modernity i mean mm-hmm. if you think about it from the vivarian perspective and a kind of post enlightenment perspective uh, then well modernity does not come to most of the world until the 19th century or perhaps even later yeah. um and part of what i hope that my work pushes back against is that this notion of modernity is to be measured by some kind of western vivarian european uh rule um mm-hmm. so that you know europe became early modern in the 16th century but you know well maybe china didn't become modern until the 20th century or the 19th century and yeah. what about turkey for instance right? right um and so part of what i suggest is perhaps we can more usefully think about a history of modernity by thinking about the circulation uh, of concepts and yeah, the way in which absolutely. they come out of different kinds of geographical and cultural locations. Well, I think for our listeners who uh, are hearing what you're saying and maybe checking out your book, uh, it's certainly inspiration to read works such as the very famous Jihan Numa of uh, Katib Chelebi, yes. a book all about the world. Yes. Uh, very much an early modern work. Read that uh, in the context of this larger phenomenon uh, of world making. Yeah, and the other thing I'd say about this is, you know, um, there's been a historiographical tendency to look at Europe in this narrative of progress, right? So Europe sheds its pre-modern, magical, mm-hmm. religious, theological interests in the favor of secularism and democracy and yeah. uh, science. And this is a kind of onward and upward movement while, you know, large parts of the world remain mired in magical thinking and yeah. religion mm-hmm. and despotism. And, you know, and that uh, historiography remains deeply pervasive even though people have pushed back against it. But there mm-hmm. is this tendency to kind of look at institutions, for instance, yeah. in uh, the Middle East versus Europe and say, oh, look, capitalism is happening in Western Europe. Capitalism is not happening in the Middle East. Therefore, the Middle East is not modern in the 17th century. And part of what I want to push back against is this kind of clear-cut boundary to suggest that actually, if we look closely at Europe's own modernity, it remains mired, in fact, in theology and metaphysics and magical thinking and... um, you know, to obscure that is in some ways to not allow us to see how in these contexts where we have emphasized the magical thinking yeah. and theology, there may also have been things that we would recognize as being modern. It's a question of emphasis. Yeah. And so I think by in some ways uncovering these more kind of contested or complicated aspects of Europe's own early modernity, we might be able to uncover and see better the yeah. early modernity of non-European places too. Sure. And I mean, it, it's worth uh, thinking about how it's dangerous to give ideas too much uh, uh, value in this context because, of course, Europe's experience of modernity uh, in this newly expanding outside mm-hmm. world is, is rather different than, say, uh, people in the Americas, yes. whose, whose cosmos, whose worldview yes. totally changed uh, due to encounter with Europeans, but because of the outcome, of course... Absolutely. took a radically different form. Right. I mean, history of the victors. I mean, this is part of right. the, the, the challenge, I think, of writing this kind of history. And I became sort of very conscious of the 
in some ways the kind of intellectual danger of the sort of project I was underda- undertaking because I I wasn't really trying <laughs> yeah. to say you know that um, the world the concept of the world that matters is the one that won out which yeah. is therefore that of the colonize, colonizers and the European mar- center and you know really the Amerindian margins mm-hmm. or the kind of mass genocide of native peoples doesn't matter because they were just well eliminated I mean that's certainly not um, where I yeah. would want to go um, and once again I'll say that I think one of the really striking things here and there's been really interesting work on this by uh, colonial mm-hmm. um, American historians that the complicity between the native populations in the Americas with the colonizers the ways in which the kind of apocalyptic symbolism and language of native cultures also spoke to kind of a shifting vision of the world is something that we have not attended to mm-hmm. uh, and that we certainly should attend to and yeah. my own training limits me there but I have spoken with people who are interested in this, who are interested in kind of teasing out and un- native sources that also speak to the sense of a kind of world in flux. One of the tropes I talk yeah. a lot about in the book is the idea of this millenarianism and apocalyptic Absolutely, sense yeah. that the world is dying and a new world will take its place. And um, it's certainly not clear in 1600 that that new world is going to be the triumph of the Europeans by any means. Uh, We can look back today and see it as an inevitability. But if you were standing in 1600, it's not clear that that would be as easy to discern. Um, And I think that 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 sense of... um, a changing world picture, a changing world order, uh, the chaos in the ruins of an old world order, the sense that a new one is not yet clear, mm-hmm. um, is a sensibility that is not only a European one. It's one that I think one could write about interestingly and, and I think should be written sure. about uh, in the American context, in the African context, in the South Asian Absolutely. context. Um, and I think that as historians and as literary scholars, we're not comfortable with writing about sensibilities. I mean, how do you how do you uncover what a sensibility is, right? What yeah. are your sources and how do you quantify this? But part of, I think, what my book tries to do by using so many different kinds of sources that are often not put together in the same place mm-hmm. is to suggest that we can perhaps begin to unpack in a culture's own language um, its own sense of its own moment. Yeah, right? or at least try to get at the diversity of the voices in that yes. time through micro-histories of, right. say, individual right. uh, worldviews. All right, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here talking with Dr. Aisha Ramachandran about her new book entitled World World Makers. That's out from Chicago University Press. Uh, The musical clip you just heard is... uh, a little excerpt from the La Mekan Ensemble, our friends in Istanbul who have allowed us to use their music for the independent and even less independent musicians out there who do want to put their music out. Uh, we like to use the, the podcast as a way of showcasing uh, this new work for our friends in uh, Istanbul, Turkey, and elsewhere. Dr. Ramachandran, we've been talking about... Um, the issue of world making and the making of new new concepts of, of the world and how indeed we think it's uh, 
not just the European phenomenon, indeed, is is going on in many different parts of the world who are engaged in, mm-hmm. you know, the new spread of ideas and movement of people uh, and whatnot. Uh, but I want to turn a little bit towards uh, the world makers that you focused on in, in your own uh, research. Uh, some of them are some of the biggest uh, names, really, uh, in European uh, literature and philosophy and some of the formative thinkers uh, in the making of... Uh, what today is our modern, quote-unquote, European scientific uh, mm-hmm. worldview. Mm-hmm. So, you know, tell us about uh, your world makers uh, and the times they lived in. Um, thank you. Let me maybe just offer a helpful overview of why I chose who I choose in the book and why mm-hmm. it kind of is organized the way it is. One of the challenges of this kind of project is that when you start writing about the world, you're tempted to write about everything. Yeah. Um, and I realized very quickly that this was also the problem of the people that I wrote about. Yeah. And that one of the really interesting kind of mirroring effects of my own book with the books I was writing about is that um, many of the early modern writers too were trying to make sense and to articulate what the times they lived in, what what was their new world picture, what mm-hmm. was the old one. Uh, and so cosmography, this literally the writing of the world, becomes yeah. an important genre in this period that becomes a kind of publishing industry bestseller and then just crashes because it becomes really clear that, well, no one can really write about a write one book that encapsulates everything about the world. Uh, unsurprisingly, the cosmography is also the precursor of the encyclopedia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there is this sort of attempt to think about writing and the world and the question of whether language can in some ways capture everything that we want to know or articulate or hold in terms of our knowledge of the world. So I realized very quickly that my own project was doomed in quite the same way. And so I had to figure out case studies that would allow me to get into important disciplinary approaches to this question, both to unpack how these people themselves were struggling with the problem, but then to offer a way to think about what that term world may have looked like in its making. Mm-hmm. And so who are so, the people? So the book so the book begins with uh, Gerhard Mercator, uh, mm-hmm. the inventor of the famous Mercator projection, mm-hmm. and uh, discusses the invention of the world atlas as a new genre. So Mercator's Atlas, published in 1595, is the first book to give the genre its name. Uh, we often say the first world atlas is that published by Ortelius in 15. 15- 70, a book called The Theater of the World or Mm -hmm. Theatrum Arbis Terrarum. And I argue for various reasons that no, actually Mercator's Atlas, which gives, which uses that term uh, and thinks about the relationship between the world and the body of the human maker uh, is in fact conceptually the first moment when we get this idea of the world in a book, in a a map book. So it's a book that thinks, it's a chapter thinks about geography, about how the world as a geographical entity comes to be imagined on the page, um, particularly through the career of Mercator and how Mm -hmm. this is not purely uh it's it's let me put it this way it's both a mathematical empirical project as much as it is a project that's speculative creative and finally theological and metaphysical Mm -hmm. so i go from the drawing of the map to the idea of the cosmographic meditation to kind of trace how imagining the world was implicated in in a whole bunch of different early scientific and uh, philosophic discourses yeah it's Um, something we've talked about in some of our earlier discussions mm -hmm. about history of science just how much the the new scientific uh, views that were in the making were very much wedded to these old, as you said, theological. But yeah. I mean, in the case of the atlas, I mean, why the the name of an atlas? It's so striking that it's referring to atlas yes. uh, from you know mythology, essentially. Yeah, and it's interesting too that um, the the figure of Atlas as the man who can. I mean, Mercator 
reinvents that image. Uh, mm-hmm. It's no longer just an old man who is crushed by the weight of the world on his shoulders, which is mm-hmm. a very kind of earlier view of it. But Atlas becomes the um, Mercator is at pains to say that his Atlas is not that Atlas who was punished to hold the world, but he's he invents a whole new mythology for this Phoenician king who uh, contemplated the cosmos and who mm-hmm. had this particular knowledge of astrology and astronomy. So it's a kind of self-making itself. And yeah. I'm interested in this idea that um, how imagining or writing the world puts the individual world yeah. maker in the same position as God, a world mm-hmm. maker, yeah. and the kind of theological tension that's occasioned by this. Yeah. Uh, so Mercator's invention of a new mythology to support his own self-mythology as um, a world maker, a cartographer, uh, is really striking and sort yeah. of sets the tone for what a lot of other people were in some ways less articulately doing in their own practice. It reminds me of this uh, this company. This is free advertising for a company. We rarely do this, but there's the Magellan GPS brand. Of yes, course. of and course. <laughs> Of course, uh, that GPS is, you know, arguably much much different thing than Magellan. And we know Magellan's fate. But uh, you're right. Yeah, this, very this much reappropriation so. of and mythologies. also, I mean, I'll say that when you think about world, you know, we all have this kind of iconic image of the world map that, for better or for worse, remains Mercator's projection of the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's Google Maps still uses something called Web Mercator, mm-hmm. uh, and so there's a part. Of, I was interested in unpacking the kind of long cultural legacy of mm-hmm. this particular figure and what he was doing. I mean, is the 1569 famous map that it? Um, has the Mercator projection for the first time. Is it really a map that's implicated in empire and imperialism mm-hmm. and all of the things that it's now associated with? Or is it doing something else? Um, and I actually suggest that that's a map that's less interested in a certain sense in empire and it's more interested in this kind of broader in, in ideas of world harmony and mm-hmm. ideas of kind of uh, coherence and cohesion that Mercator tries to bring about through mathematics. It's a mm-hmm. really kind of, uh, I mean, Jerry Broughton has done interesting work on this too, and there's a kind of shift in thinking about Mercator's theological interests mm-hmm. alongside his cartographic ones. I mean, again, fields you don't put together in trying to kind of write a history that's post 18th century. But if we go back to, you know, Mercator almost lost his life in the 1540s of, of, in a heresy trial and fled Louvain to go live in a mm-hmm. tiny German duchy. Uh, where he could be independent. Um, and it's interesting to think about how his scientific practice could then be implicated already. I mean, this is where long before Galileo in um, in sort of heretical claims and how thinking the world itself could have been um, a politically and religiously charged sure. matter. Yeah. Um, so, I, so the Mercator chapter is followed by a chapter on Montaigne, on Montaigne's essays, where I'm interested here in really the opposite of the mapping enterprise. So Ma, Montaigne writes a book that is really supposedly an autobiography, uh, one of the first uh, autobiographies. And I argue actually that writing the self in the essays comes out of Mo, uh, Montaigne's very close engagement with cosmography. Mm-hmm. So Montaigne draws on tropes from cosmography and geography to describe the self itself as a world. So the language of self oh, and world wow. merge in this text, and we see here how the making of the kind of modern self and the making of the modern world become this powerfully reciprocal um, activity. Uh, my third chapter looks at early modern epic, particularly uh, Camões, uh, the great uh, Portuguese writer who writes an epic on the uh, Portuguese so-called discovery of the sea route to India, mm-hmm. and uh, Edmund Spencer, the English uh, writer who served as a minor colonial official in Ireland. Uh, and I'm interested here in both these figures who lived lives of colonial officials. Um, Camões yeah. 
Lemoyne lived in Goa. He traveled in Portuguese Asia. Uh, uh, Spencer spent most of his life in Ireland. So both of them, in a sense, wrote to empire from the margins. Um, mm-hmm. And they both wrote these great imperial epics that want to think about the about two very small nations and their aspirations to a kind of world dominion. So the mm-hmm. the the chapter is interested here both in epic as a genre and the way in which it can compete in this new climate with other soft forms of world description mm-hmm. and just and this and the problem of scale which I think is really important how nations aspire to imperial scales and how those ideas of empires then imagine themselves competing with other empires for a piece of the world. So mm-hmm. there's a kind of I would say here a kind of a three-part division from nation to empire to world and the goal there through these literary texts is to unpack a different kind of thinking about these categories in the early modern period than what it's often a kind of historical consensus. I mean, there is we are far away still from the idea of empire and world being the same thing. Hmm. Um, my four chapters on Descartes and um, it's... Uh, <laughs> Descartes seems an odd character in this book, but um, he his first and arguably most important kind of work is a book called Le Monde, uh, The World, yeah. which he suppresses after the um, uh, condemnation of Galileo in 1633. Uh, and he suppresses it because it is an attempt to rewrite Aristotle, a new theory of the world, quite literally from a physical perspective. But the work that he does for Le Monde finds itself into every other major text he wrote. So it is part of the essays that appended to the Discourse on Method, the discourse actually summarizes Le Monde that was never published. Mm-hmm. It's the basis of the principles of philosophy, and it is arguably also the basis of the meditations. And so I sort of begin with this text, which uh, describes the coming to existence of a world, and then talk about how the new science, and particularly this new interest in epistemology and metaphysics, becomes another way of trying to get at this conceptual um, concept. So if I can ask, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, for Descartes, it's similar to Montaigne in that uh, the concept, the the conception of the world, is also intertwined with the understanding of the self. Um. So no, actually, part of my, I think, I, I guess, I'm I'm writing about Descartes in the context of a new historiography that doesn't see Descartes purely at him as a metaphysician who's interested mm-hmm. in thinking about self and God, mm-hmm. but rather who sees him as a scientist who was really whose entire early career is about an interest in optics, in meteorology, mm-hmm. in physics, in uh, literally in mathematical exper- experimentation, mm-hmm. and so I think about Descartes really as a scientist who's trying to come up with a new kind of total theory. So I think about how the discourse on method, Lemoine and then its, mm-hmm. its derivatives uh, are all trying to think about how can we, what is the intellectual basis for our knowledge of the world? Descartes has to deal with the powerful skeptical crisis, right? That man cannot know the world because of yeah. the limitations of his reason. But what do we do after that? This is Montaigne's question mm-hmm. in the Apology for Raymond Sebon, mm-hmm. that we cannot come to know the world because we are fundamentally limited. Descartes' answer in all his work is the basis of a new kind of philosophical method that will allow us to surmount that barrier and still have a a basis or a grounding for, come to, for coming to have knowledge of the world. So mm-hmm. um, so in a sense, my Descartes in the book is very much a Descartes in the company of other scientists. Mm-hmm. He's an epistemologist and not primarily a metaphysician. And I argue with a number of other major Descartes scholars, in fact, that Descartes' metaphysics is posterior to his uh, scientific work. And so he has to write the metaphysics um, to support what is actually a more radical uh, attempt to con- completely throw out Aristotle. Hmm. even though he derives on Aristotle, sort of is drawing heavily on Aristotle and offer a new foundation for the writing of a new science. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is really the power, I think, of the work on Descartes. Um, mm-hmm. And the last chapter is on Milton's Paradise Lost. And um, it's really a chapter that 
thinks about why write about Genesis in 1670 uh, in the wake okay. of major, um, if major discoveries in astronomy and in, in the new science, uh, in the wake of empiricism, why go back to this foundational sort of creationist text? Uh, mm-hmm. And what what is Milton doing? Why is this text really a text that's permeated by imagining the creation of the world, which Milton knows that he cannot see mm-hmm. and that he is never really going to know about? And so um, it's in some ways, I, I would say, a um, a revisionist reading of Paradise Lost, not as a kind of, you know, theological uh, a text per se, but as a text that's also skeptically and relentlessly interested in unpacking that moment of creation and getting back to why Genesis might be still a necessary creation story for a new age. So mm-hmm. it's been it's a it's a truism that Milton's Paradise Lost uh, is full of things that are not in the Bible. Um, and the question that I ask and the answer is, is, is why does Milton do that? Um, why does he think it's so important to come back to this story uh, so late in the 17th century? Mm-hmm. And I suggest that a rewriting Genesis becomes fundamental in order to take account of all of these changes and to offer a new kind of creation story for a new set of premises about the world. Mm. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here talking to Dr. Aisha Ramachandran about her book, World Makers. So you mentioned, Dr. Ramachandran, all these different figures uh, in different areas of the European, the early modern European intellectual scene. And we've been sort of circling around uh, the whole issue of science. Galileo came up a few right. times, sort of the advent of, of what we call science. And there's been right. a lot of great work done on the historical context yes. of, of the historical context of the practices of science. Um, what we hold today maybe is a w- would be a universal empirical act, how it mm-hmm. was actually mm-hmm. very much embedded in certain types of belief systems and whatnot. So I, I want to ask you what you think uh, your overall work here in the five uh, case studies you deal with uh, tells us tells us about uh, the making of uh, modern science that is a huge question um, I will let me sort of limit myself to two things yeah. one is I think a lot of the really exciting work in the history of science has still been discipline specific so there's work on natural history on biology mm-hmm. and chemistry on physics and these um, tend to be pretty mutually exclusive by and mm-hmm. large um, and one of the things that I hope that my book suggests is how much more can be gained in recovering their kind of cross-fertilization. And let me give you one example. Um, So in my chapter on maps, I talk about the term um, atlas and the subtitle of the atlas, of Mercator's atlas, is uh, De Fabrica Mundi, on the making of the world, et fabricati figura, so and the made figures. Um, And the idea of a fabrica mundi, which should should call to mind, of course, Vesalius's uh, uh, De uh, Humani uh, Corpus Fabrica. And the relationship here between anatomical texts and cartographic texts is not just a kind of lexical overlap. It turns out, and I did some work on this, that there's actually a lot of interesting historical relationships mm. between early anatomists and early cartographers. So most famously, uh, Vesalius's dedication uh, is uh, mentions Gemma Frigius, who supposedly helped him steal the body on which he performed the first dissection. Now, it turns out Mercator was a student in Gemma Frigius's household when this incident may actually have taken place in the early 1540s. <laughs> um, and so we know that Mercator 
along with Frisius, along with Vesalius, was very interested in uh, astrology, and we have evidence of this in Louvain in the period. Uh, it's likely that Mercator actually went to see dissections, mm-hmm. and his one of his first world maps, a map called Orbis Imago, which is a cordiform world map, so mm-hmm. uh, a world map in heart-shaped projection, a double heart, um, which may itself have visual analogies to the ways in which anatomies were drawn and presented. So mm. so there's a kind of scientific overlap there between two disciplines that never speak to each other. The history of medicine and anatomy does not speak to the history of cartography normally. Um, and yet, that turns out to be kind of a persistent uh, conceptual and intellectual interest between the two things. Many cartographers were trained as medical doctors. Who yeah. knew? Right? So part of what I would, I think, one of the takeaways for the history of science, I think, is that perhaps more work needs to be done to track down some of these seemingly counterintuitive cross-disciplinary sort of fertilizations because many of the figures we're dealing with in the early modern period wore different hats uh, mm-hmm. and certainly thought about them, you know, in, in ways that produce creative and intellectual overlaps. Mm-hmm. Um, the second thing I would say is that um, I think that the emphasis on a kind of materialist history, so tracking, for instance, the circulation of goods or products, yeah. or um, has been so fertile for the history of science in the last 20 years, but um, it has left out or been suspicious of Uh, ideas, Mm -hmm. Um, in part because they're intangible, they're hard to get at. I mean, how can you quantify them? And yet I think that if if both materialist histories and intellectual histories were to collaborate further, we would actually get perhaps richer, more surprising accounts Mm -hmm. of um, terms like the world, uh, which are hard to pin down, Um, right? It turns out that world is not just some kind of amorphous thing, uh, which it is, but also quite precise, right? I mean, we have it in books. People write books called, you know, uh, De Mundus or uh, On the World or Fabricati, um, uh, Fabrica Mundi or Mundus Novus. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so we actually can trace in a textual material way Mm -hmm. this term, even as we're also getting at something a little bit more intangible, which is more conceptual and harder to pin down. And I would sort of, in a sense, want to urge historians of science to not be overly suspicious of that um, that space. I mean, as a literary yeah. historian, I can say this because my dealings are in the imagination a lot of the time. Yeah. But I think that that um, also would be useful potentially mm-hmm. to studies of early modern science. Yeah. I mean, it just makes you realize, you know, we have this thing you learn in, in grade school in the United States. That, like, people of the past used to think the world was flat. Yes. But people of today think the world is round. So even even in the fundamental distinction between uh, the pre-modern and modern in our, you know... Yes vernacular culture the world holds a central position yes, and i have to say for the for for anybody who actually might wonder about this nobody in the middle ages really thought the world was flat uh one of the interesting things i discovered in my very early research in graduate school was this whole flat earth idea yeah. i don't know where it comes from but um, thomas friedman which is reasonable yeah, well, no to be i mean but even but but even but even before that i mean it's it's fascinating there are these there yeah. there's a lot of writing that you know suggests that you know these poor middle medieval people who kind of thought they were going to fall off the earth yeah no uh, and people did not think that. They thought the world was a lot smaller than it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no one really ever thought it was like a disc or some kind of flat thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so turns out that the world was always three-dimensional. Right. But the, the, but the, the understanding of a three-dimensional world yes. is critical to the identity of the modern scientific Absolutely. man. Yes, yes, yes. Um, I mean, what I will say there is, you know, it's one of the things that, 
was really exciting for me and it's still exciting when I teach and talk about is when you look at these maps from the late 15th, early 16th century that begin to break the con- sort of the conical Ptolemaic projection to yeah. add a, a, an additional continent, you see them struggle visually and mathematically to put in this new piece. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like you can see someone thinking, where do I put this? Like, there's no room on my page, right? And so we see these weird insertions and additions and an attempt to literally think out on the page, how does this fit together, right? And I mean, that's sort of the most powerful visual representation of what will be a kind of long intellectual process over two centuries. Well, Dr. Ramachandran, I think this uh, project of uh, recreating the process by which different early modern Europeans uh, were making their own world and and reimagining the world... uh, is a is a is a really uh, stimulating uh, topic. Uh, it, it sits at the intersection of a lot of important questions in the historiography today, uh, and also it, it it allows us to bring imagination uh, back into the historical narrative. Yeah, I said. certainly hope so. And I hope it's been inspirational for some of our um, early modern Ottomanists who are listening and and thinking about ways to connect with the early modern European historiography. This sounds like a good connection and. Uh, Hopefully we can see that in future work of yourself and others. Thank you, Chris. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, now, for those who are wondering about this topic, want to find out more, you can go to ottomanhistorypodcast.com. We have a link to the book of Aisha Ramachandran, World Makers, Global Imagining in Early Modern Europe. That's Chicago University Press. That's also a place where you can um, find other episodes related to today's subject, including Nir Shafir's uh, series on history of science, Ottoman and otherwise. Uh, That's a place where you can get in touch with our Facebook audience, over 20,000 people following, commenting, sharing uh, on social media, uh, the latest episodes of Ottoman History Podcast. And uh, the Facebook group is a a great place to stay abreast of our future episodes and other content that we share on our webpage. That's all for this episode. I want to thank you all for listening and invite you to join in next time. And until then, take care.